Book Two, Chapter Nine, Part One of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On Division Number Three of the Los Muertos Ranch, the wheat had already been cut, and S. Behrman, on a certain morning in the first week of August, drove across the open expanse of stubble toward the southwest his eyes searching the horizon for the feather of smoke that would mark the location of the steam harvester. However, he saw nothing. The stubble extended onward, apparently, to the very margin of the world. At length, S. Behrman halted his buggy and brought out his field-glasses from beneath the seat. He stood up in his place and, adjusting the glasses, swept the prospect to the south and west. It was the same as though the sea of land were in reality the ocean and he, lost in an open boat, were scanning the waste through his glasses, looking for the smoke of a steamer, hull down, below the horizon. Wonder, he muttered, Mr. Working on before this morning. At length he murmured an awe of satisfaction. Far to the south, into the white sheen of sky immediately over the horizon, he made out a faint smudge, the harvester, beyond doubt. Thither S. Behrman turned his horse's head. It was all of an hour's drive over the uneven ground and through the crackling stubble, but at length he reached the harvester. He found, however, that it had been halted. The sack-sowers, together with the header-man, were stretched on the ground in the shade of the machine, while the engineer and separator-man were pottering about a portion of the works. "'What's the matter, Billy?' demanded S. Behrman, reining up. The engineer turned about. The grain is heavy in here. We thought we'd better increase the speed of the cup carrier and pulled up to put in a smaller sprocket. S. Behrman nodded to say that was all right, and added a question. How was she going? Anywheres from twenty-five to thirty sacks to the acre, right along here. Nothing the matter with that, I guess. Nothing in the world, Bill. One of the sack-sowers interposed. For the last half hour we've been throwing off three bags to the minute. That's good. That's good. It was more than good. It was bonanza. And all that division of the great ranch was thick with just such wonderful wheat. Never had Los Muertos been more generous, never a season more successful. S. Behrman drew a long breath of satisfaction. He knew just how great was his share in the lands which had just been absorbed by the corporation he served, just how many thousands of bushels of this marvelous crop were his property. Through all these years of confusion, bickerings, open hostility, and at last actual warfare, he had waited, nursing his patience, calm with the firm assurance of ultimate success. The end at length had come. He had entered into this reward and saw himself at last installed in the place he had so long, so silently coveted, saw himself chief of a principality, the master of wheat. The sprocket adjusted, the engineer called up the gang, and the men took their places. The firemen stoked vigorously. The two sack-sowers resumed their posts on the sacking platform, putting on the goggles that kept the chaff from their eyes. The separator-man and header-man gripped their levers. The harvester, shooting a column of thick smoke straight upward, vibrating to the top of the stack, hissed, clanked, and lurched forward. Instantly motion sprang to life in all its component parts. The header-knives, cutting a thirty-six-foot swath, gnashed like teeth. Belting slid and moved like smooth-flowing streams. 
the separator whirred the agitator jarred and crashed cylinders augers fans cedars and elevators drapers and chaff carriers clattered rumbled buzzed and clanged the steam hissed and rasped the ground reverberated a hollow note and the thousands upon thousands of wheat stalks sliced and slashed in the clashing shears of the header rattled like dry rushes in a hurricane as they fell inward and were caught up by an endless belt to disappear into the bowels of the vast brute that devoured them it was that and no less it was the feeding of some prodigious monster insatiable with iron teeth gnashing and threshing into the fields of standing wheat devouring always never glutted never satiated swallowing an entire harvest snarling and slobbering in a welter of warm vapor acrid smoke and blinding pungent clouds of chaff it moved belly deep in the standing grain a hippopotamus half mired in river ooze gorging rushes snorting sweating a dinosaur wallowing through thick hot grasses floundering there crouching groveling there as its vast jaws crushed and tore and its enormous gullet swallowed incessant ravenous and inordinate s behrman very much amused changed places with one of the sack-sowers, allowing him to hold his horse while he mounted the sacking-platform and took his place. The trepidation and jostling of the machine shook him till his teeth chattered in his head. His ears were shocked and assaulted by a myriad-tongued clamor, clashing steel, straining belts, jarring woodwork, while the impalpable chaff-powder from the separators settled like dust in his hair, his eyes, his ears, and mouth. Directly in front of where he sat on the platform was the chute from the cleaner, and from this into the mouth of a half-full sack spouted an unending gush of grain, winnowed, cleaned, threshed, ready for the mill. The pour from the chute of the cleaner had for S. Behrman an immense satisfaction. Without an instant's pause, a thick rivulet of wheat rolled and dashed tumultuous into the sack. In half a minute, sometimes in twenty seconds, the sack was full, was passed over to the second sower, the mouth reeved up, and the sack dumped out upon the ground, to be picked up by the wagons and hauled to the railroad. S. Behrman, hypnotized, sat watching that river of grain. All that shrieking, bellowing machinery, all that gigantic organism, all the months of labor, the plowing, the planting, the prayers for rain, the years of preparation, the heartaches, the anxiety, the foresight, all the whole business of the ranch, the work of horses, of steam, of men and boys, looked to this spot, the grain chute from the harvester into the sacks. Its volume was the index of failure or success of riches or poverty. At this point the labor of the rancher ended. Here, at the lip of the chute, he parted company with his grain, and from here the wheat streamed forth to feed the world. The yawning mouths of the sacks might well stand for the unnumbered mouths of the people, all agape for food, and here into these sacks, at first so lean, so flaccid, attenuated like starved stomachs, rushed the living stream of food, insistent, interminable, filling the empty, fattening the shriveled, making it sleek and heavy and solid. Half an hour later the harvester stopped again. The men on the sacking platform had used up all the sacks. 
but S. Behrman's foreman, a new man on Los Muertos, put in an appearance with the report that the wagon bringing a fresh supply was approaching. "'How is the grain elevator at Port Costa getting on, sir?' "'Finished,' replied S. Behrman. The new master of Los Muertos had decided upon accumulating his grain in bulk in a great elevator at the Tidewater Port, where the grain ships for Liverpool and the East took on their cargoes. To this end he had bought and greatly enlarged a building at Port Costa that was already in use for that purpose, and to this elevator all the crop of Los Muertos was to be carried. The P and S. W. made S. Behrman a special rate. "'By the way,' said S. Behrman to his superintendent, "'we're in luck. Fallon's buyer was in a automobile yesterday. He's buying for Fallon, and for Holt, too. I happened to run into him, and I've sold him a shipload.' A shipload? Of Los Muertos wheat. He's acting for some uh, Indian famine relief committee. A lot of women people up in the city and wanted a whole cargo. I made a deal with him. There's about 50,000 tons of disengaged shipping in San Francisco Bay right now, and ships are fighting for charters. I wired Miss Kissick and got a long-distance telephone from him this morning. He got me a bark, uh, Swanhilda. She'll dock day after tomorrow and begin loading. Hadn't I better take a run up, observed the superintendent, and keep an eye on things? No, answered S. Behrman. I want you to stop down here and see that those carpenters hustle the work in the ranch house. Derek will be out by then. You see, this, this deal is peculiar. I'm not selling to any middleman, not, not to Fallon's buyer. He only put me on to the thing. I'm acting direct with these women people, and I've got to have some hand in shipping this stuff myself. But I made my selling figure cover the price of a charter. It's a queer, mixed-up deal, and I don't fancy it much. But there's boodle in it. I'll go to Port Costa myself. A little later on in the day, when S. Behrman had satisfied himself that his harvesting was going forward favorably, he re-entered his buggy and, driving to the county road, turned southward toward the Los Muertos ranch house. He had not gone far, however, before he became aware of a familiar figure on horseback, jogging slowly along ahead of him. He recognized Presley. He shook the reins over his horse's back, and very soon, ranging up by the side of the young man, passed the time of day with him. "'Well, what brings you down here again, Mr. Presley?' he observed. "'I thought we had seen the last of you.' "'I came down to say good-bye to my friends,' answered Presley shortly. "'Going away?' "'Yes, to India.' "'Well, <laughs> by word. For your health, eh?' "'Yes.' "'You look knocked up,' asserted the other. "'By the way,' he added, "'I suppose you've heard the news.' Presley shrank a little. Of late, the reports of disasters had followed so swiftly upon one another that he had begun to tremble and to quail at every unexpected bit of information. "'What news do you mean?' he asked. "'About Dyke. He'd been convicted. The judge sentenced him for life.' "'For life?' Riding on by the side of this man through the ranches of the county road, Presley repeated these words to himself till the full effect of them burst at last upon him. Jailed for life. No outlook. No hope for the future. 
day after day, year after year, to tread the rounds of the same gloomy monotony. He saw the grey stone walls, the iron doors, the flagging of the yard bare of grass or trees, the cell, narrow, bald, cheerless, the prison garb, the prison fare, and round all the grim granite of insuperable barriers shutting out the world, shutting in the man with outcasts, with the pariah dogs of society, thieves, murderers, men below the beasts, lost to all decency, drugged with opium, utter reprobates. To this Dyke had been brought. Dyke, than whom no man had been more honest, more courageous, more jovial. This was the end of him, a prison. This was his final estate, a criminal. Presley found an excuse for riding on, leaving S. Behrman behind him. He did not stop at Carraher's saloon, for the heat of his rage had long since begun to cool, and dispassionately he saw things in their true light. For all the tragedy of his wife's death, Carraher was nonetheless an evil influence among the ranchers, an influence that worked only to the inciting of crime. Unwilling to venture himself, to risk his own life, the anarchist saloon-keeper had goaded Dyke and Presley both to murder. A bad man, a plague-spot in the world of the ranchers, poisoning the farmers' bodies with alcohol and their minds with discontent. At last Presley arrived at the ranch house of Los Muertos. The place was silent. The grass on the lawn was half dead and over a foot high. The beginnings of weeds showed here and there in the driveway. He tied his horse to a ring in the trunk of one of the larger eucalyptus trees and entered the house. Mrs. Derrick met him in the dining room. The old look of uneasiness, almost of terror, had gone from her wide-open brown eyes. There was in them instead the expression of one to whom a contingency long dreaded had arrived and passed. The stolidity of a settled grief, of an irreparable calamity, of a despair from which there was no escape was in her look, her manner, her voice. She was listless, apathetic, calm with the calmness of a woman who knows she can suffer no further. "'We are going away.' she told Presley, as the two sat down at opposite ends of the dining-table. "'Just Magnus and myself, all there is left of us. There is very little money left. Magnus can hardly take care of himself, to say nothing of me. I must look after him now. We are going to Marysville.' "'Why there?' "'You see,' she explained, "'it happens that my old place is vacant in the seminary there.' I am going back to teach literature. She smiled wearily. It is beginning all over again, isn't it? Only there is nothing to look forward to now. Magnus is an old man already, and I must take care of him. He will go with you then, Presley said. That will be some comfort to you, at least. I don't know, she said slowly. You have not seen Magnus lately. Is he... How do you mean? Isn't he any better? Would you like to see him? He is in the office. You can go right in. Presley rose. He hesitated a moment. Then, Mrs. Annixter, he asked. H Hilma, is she still with you? I should like to see her before I go. Go in and see Magnus, said Mrs. Derrick. 
I will tell her you are here. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine, Part One.